Restaurant Unstoppable, episode 107. Welcome to RestaurantUnstoppable.com. Listen to successful restaurant professionals as they discuss the tools, tactics, and services they use to better lead, manage, and market their restaurants. Join our community and make your restaurant dreams unstoppable. Here's your host, Eric Cacciatore. Yo, what is going on, all you unstoppable restaurant professionals? You know who it is, and this is the podcast for personal growth in the restaurant industry. We do it by listening to the stories and taking the advice from some of the most successful restaurant professionals that exist in today is a good one. The bombs of knowledge that get dropped today and the stories that are told, man, you have to stick through to the end of today's episode, especially to hear all about why it's so important to have an exit strategy in your business and just the power of surrounding yourself with incredible people. Before I hit play, have to remind you, please connect with me. Tell me who you want to hear from on the show and what topics you want covered, and I'll do everything humanly possible to you know, deliver on that. Uh, just email me, eric at restaurantunstoppable.com. Find me on Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn, Google+. I'm out there. Just search Restaurant Unstoppable and Eric Cacciatore, and I am bound to show up. With that said, enjoy today's show. Here it is. With excitement, allow me to introduce to you today's guest, Tom Walter. Tom, how are you today? Good morning, Eric. I'm wonderful. Awesome. Glad are, to be with you. Thank you so much. Are you ready to make some restaurant dreams unstoppable? Absolutely. All right. So Tom has more than 40 years experience as an owner and operator in the service industry. He has participated in the startup of 30 companies, uh, acquisitions of three, and in a few cases, the termination of businesses in a broad spectrum of markets. Uh, he is best known as the chief culture officer of Chicago area Tasty Catering, a suburban corporate caterer and event planner. I mean, you have done so much. This is literally just scraping the surface, a giant area view of what you're all about. So why don't you kind of uh, tell us how you got into the hospitality and service industry? Well, I was uh, one of 11 children uh, living in a three-bedroom home, so there were 13 of us, and we didn't have much money. So I left home uh, when I was 19 years old and uh, lived in the basement of uh, apartment buildings until I found a place that uh, I could share a room with a person. And um, I was working full-time for the Chicago Northwestern Railroad and going to school in the evening, and I was working at a fast food restaurant in the evening. And um, over time, and then after I got a draft deferment from Vietnam, I decided to go into the fast food industry because I needed to eat. And I always thought that if I owned a restaurant or was in the fast food business, any type of restaurant business, that it would be easy to eat. (laughs) uh, Obviously, with 13 people and uh, not much income, we didn't eat very well in our house. So as a child, boiled potatoes every night, it seemed like. So food was not uh, so much as a passion of mine as as much as a need. Mm -hmm. And uh, so I was dating a girl who was just graduated from the University of Illinois, and uh, she was going to go into teaching, and she came from money. She, her parents were wealthy. Okay. And I asked her to borrow, I, I borrowed $5,000 from her. I asked her to lend me $5,000 so I could start this restaurant with two other guys. I had to put 5000 in cash in, 
which was a considerable amount of money back in 1970. Oh, yeah. And I said, I'll pay you back in uh, two years with interest, and then we can get married. So my business funding proposal was also a wedding proposal. They <laughs> <laughs> came together, they didn't come independently. Oh, and that's uh, good. she lent me the money, and I would work nights uh, driving a cab to make sure I could pay her off. And I'd work in the restaurant for 12 hours and go out and drive a cab to earn $50 to pay her. And I paid her off, we got married. She's still my girlfriend, still my wife. Mm. And, uh, I mean, you have great restaurant experience, and, uh, I mean, today you're most well-known for your uh, catering operation, your tasty catering. Uh, what is it about the service industry, the, the hospitality industry, that, you know, draws you to it? Like, why did you get into catering? Um, I, I'd owned probably 12 or 14 restaurants and mm-hmm. uh, some very popular clubs in the city of Chicago. And the problem to me, it, it was very difficult to determine who was going to show up and how weather would affect the business. And there was a tremendous amount of food waste and labor waste because uh, there was no predetermined set amount of how many people would walk in the door. Mm-hmm. And the food industry was becoming a very red ocean. There was just so many people going into the marketplace. And um, so then the catering niche emerged from one of our restaurants. We had three fast food restaurants going in suburban Chicago. and. Uh, I decided, well, we can't compete against the major chains, but nobody can do catering like we were doing it, so we split off into catering, so now we know exactly how to schedule labor mm-hmm. and food costs, and uh, it is much more controllable for me, so that's why we went into catering and sold the restaurants. Yeah, I don't think people realize the power of the niche, and if you can see an open market, you know, an open market just to, to go after, if you're the best at whatever that niche is, I mean, there's so much potential there. Uh, you're, you're spot on on that, Eric, and yeah. when you speak to entrepreneurship classes, that's the point that I identify is that you find a niche, capture that niche market while it's still exploding, sell and get out before it matures. And uh, now there's 2.5 million restaurants that became caterers in the United States within the last three years, so the catering market is now mm-hmm. a red ocean. It's uh, filled with competition, and it's a very tough business, but uh, we, we started some other companies to offset the the onslaught of competition, so there's other revenue streams now. Yeah, I mean, there's that, that too, the having multiple revenue streams. I, I think we're going to learn a lot from you today in this interview, and I'm really excited for it. And I have to point out, we don't need to dive a lot into it because I think it will come up later in the interview, but I counted like something like 10 different recognitions for being an incredible company to work for on your, you know, in your, your bio, your profile. And I mean, that to me, uh, is really powerful, and uh, I mean, I think we'll dive into this later on in the interview that we have opportunities to talk about it, but I'm super excited about what advice you have for just being a great company, so people will want to work for you. Great. Look yeah, awesome. Okay, so before we dive into these questions, I need to get you to share with us a success quote or mantra, because this is a motivational, inspirational podcast, so what do you have for us? I believe the one that's motivated most of my life uh, is uh, Dr. William Borders' Uh, the Wheat Street Baptist Church in Atlanta, uh, came up with a great poem that I read in high school, I Am Somebody. And uh, it says, no matter what our ethnic difference, no matter what our color is, it, in fact, it ends up, uh, I might be white, yellow, black, or brown. My hair might be different. My clothes may be different. But I must be respected, never neglected or rejected. For I'm God's child. I am somebody. And throughout my career, I've never thought anything other than the people that work for me are somebody. They're mm-hmm. important. They have wants and needs. You know, I, I, I like Dr. Martin Luther King's, uh, I have a vision, and, you know, dream. I 
change it so I have a vision. So I always have visions of where I want to go. Robert Kennedy, or John F. Kennedy, made a big point of when he, a big impact to me when he said that uh, ask not what you can do for your, what the country can do for you, but ask what you can do for your country. Mm. So my whole attitude has been focused on our employees. Ask not what I can do for myself, but what can I do for you? Mm-hmm. And that's that, uh, that has paid off in spades for us. Oh, absolutely. That servant leadership uh, mentality is just so powerful. And if you serve others, I mean, how much others will serve you will just go so far and so great. So, I mean, and I, I love your quote, I am somebody. I mean, not only is are you somebody, like, are your employees somebody, but you are somebody. And if you have that mentality that you are, you have everything you need to do great things, if you can just get that mentality that I am somebody that can do great things. I, I just think, I mean, the sky is the limit. So awesome, great quotes. Uh, thank you so much for sharing. Both of those are actually, how, did I count three? Three of them, right? Awesome. Yeah, thank you for all those. Great stuff. I'll have those in the show notes. So the first question I have for you, Tom, what is your it factor? Like, what is it about Tom Walter that contributes to his success? Hmm. I think my intended differentiator, the one that I'm focused on, is that I'm a lifelong learner, uh, specifically about behavior, behavior, human behavior, organizational behavior. I've never stopped learning because I don't have a college degree and I compete with a lot of people that are very learned. Mm-hmm. So I try to read at least two business books a week and two, uh, two, well, one philosophy book and or something to do with philosophy and one for recreation. Mm-hmm. So I'm a, a habitual reader. But high turnover, unsatisfied, and underappreciated people is a common plague in our hospitality industry. You know, people turn over because they're just not wanted, not needed, not mm-hmm. appreciated. So industry calls, industry-wide calls are made to focus on customer satisfaction to achieve success. Mm-hmm. When, in fact, it should be employee satisfaction. So we measure our employee satisfaction through employee engagement scores, and I've found out over time that employee engagement scores are the leading indicator of an organizational's health and financials are a lagging indicator. Mm-hmm. Then the differentiator, I bring that lifelong learning to all of our employees through an internal university, TC University, so our people continue to learn org behavior, org development, emotional intelligence, all the things that, that are taught at the graduate level for a master's degree. We want our employees, even dishwashers and line-level employees, to learn what this is so we know how to operate with each other. Mm. I mean, that's all powerful powerful stuff. Um, I mean, just that employee satisfaction and focusing on the employee. And one of my past guests has said, you know, if you focus on keeping your, your employees happy, your employees will make sure your guests are happy, and your guests will make sure your bottom line is happy. <laughs> so, I mean... Yep. It's all great advice, um, and everything that's coming out of your mouth is super powerful. Like This is uh, great, great stuff. So the uh, next question I have for you is these it factors that you have, your lifelong learning, your, uh, you know always looking to read and just to take care of your employees. Tell us a story where all these it factors kind of like come together and helps you get to that next level. Take us down to the moment. Uh, a critical moment, a defining moment, and... Uh... I think that everybody that's listening should be aware of what tribal stories are, and they should record tribal stories. They should keep a file, even if it's a word file, about important things that happen in the growth of their organization. But a key tribal story happened about nine years ago when we just moved into a 23,000-square-foot building from a 5,000-square-foot building. Now we have 38,000 square feet because we bought the building next door. 
And uh, my, I have two brothers who are partners of mine, and they're, you know, we've been fighting all our lives. So we uh, had no problem with screaming, especially the middle brother, screaming at each other, screaming obscenities, and barking at employees. And about a month after we moved into this building, we're still establishing territories like animals. And uh, I came into my desk. It was, uh, I think it was November 28th of 2005 or six. I came into my desk and I sat down and I decided which brother, I was trying to decide which brother I should attack first so I could have dominance for the week. <laughs> and uh, a young man, 23-year-old young man and a 22-year-old young woman appeared at my desk and they said, either you change or we're leaving. <laughs> I sat and I thought, I haven't had coffee yet. Change what? <laughs> and, uh, but these were two of the, you know, I'd, they'd started working for us as a, as servers, because we do a lot of outdoor events, they started at 15 years old, and these were two of the best and brightest employees I'd ever had, and I had over 10,000 employees by that time. These two were superstars. Mm -hmm. And so I hesitated, and I said, change what? And they said, we don't want command and control anymore. And I said, well, what is that? Well, that's the way you lead, through command and control, and we can't understand who's in command and who's controlling, and your brothers, it, it's turmoil for us, and we don't like it. So either you change or we're leaving. And uh, I paused for a moment, and I said, you know, I don't know how else to lead. I've done this my whole life. And uh, I said, but if you have a better way, I'll be happy to support you. Because I was older, and I realized that these two could be my succession plan. These mm -hmm. two could permit myself and my brothers to leave. So we bought the book. It was their idea. They bought the book, Good to Great, from, uh, by Jim Collins in Spanish and English, and had the whole company read it. And uh, had the employees come up with their with their culture statements, their core values, their vision, their mission, a BHAG, which is a big, hairy, audacious goal, and that is to be the most recognized and respected brand in our industry. And uh, we supported them. It took a while to convince my brothers, but we supported these two young leaders. And uh, the difference in our company was overwhelming. And years later, I found out with Cotter's eight principles of change. We followed Cotter's eight steps of change un unknowingly, but I became a focused on Cotter when I found out that we had followed his rules of change. So if anybody listening is interested in how you change an organization, it's Cotter, K-O-T-T-E-R. I think his first name is John. But we went through this metamorphosis, and it took us about a year and a half, but uh, then we entered the best place to work in Illinois, and we took second, and the next year we took first, and then we've won 22 best places to work uh, awards, including um, 2014, we won the American Psychological Association, uh, the psychologically healthiest workplace in the United States for small businesses. So, and that they had a battery of psychologists come in and examine our employees randomly and mm. uh, ask them questions to see if they were healthy. So that was the defining moment in the change of our career. Now. Nine years later, ten years later, Eric, what happened to that 23-year-old boy and the 22-year-old girl? The 23-year-old is co-founder of six of our companies. He's uh, brilliant. He's wealthy. He's smart. He's aggressive. The 22-year-old girl has co-founded two of them, and uh, they're both investors in a real estate investment trust in uh, Arizona, and they've involved other employees in founding other companies. So they're brilliant leaders, and I would have missed that if I didn't stop to listen. 
And I, at that moment, I thought, they are somebody. And what they're saying, if they have enough courage to come up to me and say this, I should have enough courage to listen to them. <laughs> that's the power of more people. I mean, I wish I could show you my notepad right now. I have so much written down, and I honestly don't even know where to start to kind of, like, to put an end to close this part of the interview. I mean, there's just so much there. Everything from recording stories to switching away from that command and control. And, I mean, all of your it factors came out, your lifelong learning. Like, this was a learning process for you. You brought a book in with your it factor of reading good to great. Um, and that employee satisfaction. And it's all about keeping your employees happy. I mean, and, and then you answered all of my questions as you're going about, like, what happened to these two young people? What are they doing today? Like, that was awesome. <laughs> like, that was well, such you. a great story. And, I mean, we there's so much value packed in that. I'm going to play this over again and just really listen to it a few times. Um, you guys at home should, too. That was great stuff. So the next question I have for you, we can learn so much from our successes, right? But the ultimate, you know, learning experiences come from our failures. So can you share with us a time you failed? And I am so excited to hear the story. Again, this is a tribal story, but uh, I had two restaurants that I lost seven figures in. Uh, one was in the 70s and one was in the 80s. And once again, it was a considerable amount of money. And uh, the first one, and I, I married, the girl I married has a master's in finance, and she's a certified financial player planner. It's a, a good uh, yeah, other yeah. half to have. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, that's why <laughs> you should have heard our discussions around the dinner table to this day. <laughs> you know, I'm a serial entrepreneur that yeah. wants to always use opportunities. In fact, I'm launching another business right now. And I said, I'm launching businesses. She's telling me we should be putting money away. And, you know, so. <laughs> sorry sorry anyway, to interrupt. <laughs> She, uh, she told me this one restaurant I opened, and it's just stunning. And, you know, I, I'm 30 years old. I went from nothing to being wealthy and accumulated a notable amount of money. And, uh, and I opened up this restaurant, and I hired the best people I could find, Eric, the mm -hmm. best. Yeah. And I screened them for their skills, and they were awesome. And their <laughs> top-line sales were rising. And she keeps telling me, your bottom line is sinking. I said, don't worry about it. The curve will catch up. The top line's growing. We're getting publicity. We're doing well. She says, no, you're not. And then a week goes by, and then she says, she, another month goes by, and she does the financial analysis. She says, hey, stupid, do you understand how much money you're losing? And I said, it's going to change, dear. Trust me. She says, no, I don't trust you because it's my money, too. And what you've hired is a great bunch of thieves. Your food costs are out of control. They're above industry norm, and we use the National Restaurant Association's gauges for that. Yeah. Your labor costs are out of control, but your food costs and your pouring costs, they're stealing you blind. Mm. And so then I went in and found out that they, in fact, were, and they were all colluding to steal. And uh, I sold the business at a tremendous loss, tremendous loss, seven figures. And I found out the value of people. So now we screen for skill, but we hire for attitude. We mm. hire people based on their attitude. And uh, we've taken it up many notches now. So and the second one was that uh, I opened up a, a restaurant, spent a lot of money again, invested a lot of money on this one. So I, I lost in the 30s, in my early 30s, I was very poor, lost all the money again. And, but I didn't declare bankruptcy because if you declare bankruptcy in the hospitality industry, you're dead. Yeah. So I, I paid off a lot of money on time. In fact, I asked my wife if she'd quit teaching and go into business so I could use her teacher's retirement money. <laughs> <laughs> it's still over six figures because I bought my debt off for 10 cents of the dollar. 
had a lovely wife. Uh. But um, <laughs> the second business that I lost money, I was about eight years later. I got my confidence back, and I was doing well. And, and shortly after opening up the restaurant, the state of Illinois came in and put non-mountable medians in front of the driveway, which means I had limited ingress and egress. And I went to the local village, and I was hot under the collar about that. And they said, I asked them, why didn't you tell me about this? And they said, why didn't you ask? Mm. And I thought, really? And uh, I'm no longer doing business in that uh, town, nor will I ever. But it taught me the value of having advisors. So the first one taught me the value of having people that were based on values. Mm-hmm. The second one taught me how important it was to surround myself with people that are more knowledgeable, wiser, and uh, more learned in areas that I wasn't. So I have uh, 10 close advisors in every domain, every discipline of business, mm. marketing, <laughs> public relations, etc. Awesome. I mean, that was in both those stories. I mean, you, you took us through the experience and what was going on. And then most importantly, you really drove home the, the lessons learned, you know, hiring attitude over skill and surrounding yourself with people who know a little bit more than you do about the, the, the specific topics and uh, can really be powerful. And that's really what I want this podcast to be for people. You know, like you just listen to these people who like you, who are just giving this great advice. It's free, you know, consulting and advising. And it's just, I mean, just by being able to surround yourself with those who can teach you their mistakes and what not to do. It's just so powerful. Yeah. And, um, I mean, you are proving to be a great, great guest, Tom. I cannot wait for the the next round of this interview, which is called knowledge bombs. And you're just going to drop a big old, you know, not necessarily, I mean, you do have that restaurant experience and the catering experience, but I think these are just going to be life knowledge bombs because <laughs> like, you just are giving us so much great stuff. Are you ready? Yes, sir. All right. The first question I have for you is what advice do you have for funding a restaurant? This will be a slight delay because I self-funded the last, you know, for the last 25 years or so. Um, my suggestion would be to have accessible cash for twice what projections indicate are needed. Mm-hmm. So if, if you think you need 100000 you really need 200000 or 250000 Understand the ramifications of partners, investors, floating interest rates, etc. With every partner, with every investor, comes a bag of garbage. And will you be able to deal with that bag of garbage? Don't focus on the money. Focus on the people and the intent. Why are they going to give you money? Mm. Um, define the point in advance of when you're not going to lose any more money. So as you're planning your entrance into the business, plan your exit. The actual funding, I use friends and family, which is also called bootstrapping. Uh, I don't know how to do it any other way, so I cannot go any further with this because I've only used conventional loans from banks and family and friends. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, well, what would you say about that? Because you say most of your you know, adventures or these businesses that you start are self-funded. Would you say it's, that's the way to go if possible? Well, I, I prefer it because it, uh, the only money you lose is money you were going to make an investment on. Uh, we have one of our companies, Tui Capital, is uh, like a funding arm, and every company pays a certain percentage into that company, and that company does the administration for all the companies. So we only have one set of accountants, one set of financial people. We don't have uh, – each company doesn't have their own independent grouping like that. But uh, Tui Capital had a massive wealth, and we're able to lend money to start a new company or invest money. So if an employee comes forward and says, I have this great idea, and if it passes our leadership team, which is comprised of the CEOs of all the companies and the C-level people, and they say, yes, let's do this one, we invest in those people. 
But uh, I forego, I, for, I, I did not follow the material passion of having bling, you know, having nice cars and having a big home and all that. Mm-hmm. I, didn't, I wanted to live as economical as possible. Of course, I wanted a nicer car and a nicer home. But instead, I, because I was a poor kid, I kept hoarding the money, hoarding the cash, you know, building the cash reserves, uh, not cash as we know it, dollar bills, but hoarding, uh, I wanted cash. I wanted to make sure we had enough money in the account mm-hmm. and no debt. And then when an opportunity came along, you know, people talk about me being lucky, and I, I disagree with that. I think it's preparation meets opportunity. So mm-hmm. we were prepared to make investments when the opportunities arose. Awesome. So that's why I call it self-funding, is we, we pull it out of our own reserves. And if we don't have the money to invest, we wait a year. Mm-hmm. And if the opportunity is really good, then we borrow money conventionally from a bank. We'll leverage a piece of property or something. Another point that I made, another thing that I did early on is the first business I started, I bought the property as soon as I could. I made it part of a lease. So then I would have real estate instead of just paying rent. I would mm. have money in the real estate. And the real estate now has made me has really lent itself to my wealth. Yeah, those assets are so important. So, I mean, great stuff. Um, so just to recap, time, like self-fund if possible. Uh, always have twice as much than you think you're going to need uh, as far as capital goes. And then uh, make sure your partners and investors are invested in you. And, you know, is that in, in the, that's what I heard. And then the bottom line, make sure you have that bottom line and don't go past it. Right. No one to bail out. No one to quit. Awesome stuff. So the next question I have for you, what advice do you have for hiring? Screen for skill, hire for culture match. Mm-hmm. We have our culture statements everywhere. They're on our website. And we tell people, look at those seven core values. That's what you're going to be held accountable for. If you can't follow those, if you can't obey those, can't live by that, then you're not going to make it here. Yeah, especially yeah, especially in the service industry where like it's all about that, that experience. And people create the experience. And you need those positive attitudes, those great people to create that experience. So powerful. And I, did I cut you off? Are you about to add something else? No, you're absolutely right, Eric. I mean, before I became more sophisticated from an academic point of view and studied this, I found that some of my best times when I had clubs were when my bartenders and servers were on the same level as I was. Mm -hmm. They weren't there just to make money. They were college students. They had some very hot, successful college bars in the city of Chicago, Mm -hmm. located right next to the universities. And these people were there just to have fun. They weren't there to line their pockets with money. So that was my first exposure to culture. Mm. And we hire slowly, but we terminate fast. So we screen the people very closely, then we eliminate them. Mm. And uh, then we call people out for the core values. So, like, number two is treat all with respect. So if someone's being disrespectful, you can just say, hey, is that number two? Are you treating that person with respect? And that goes a lot, a long way, because it's defined on every wall. This mm-hmm. is what our behavior So, Tom, once you find these incredible people, what do you do to keep them on your team? And this is when I knew that uh, (laughs) being recognized for the best place to work was going to come out in this question. And what is it that you do to to keep these people working for you, this employee retention, which is such a struggle in the industry? And it seems like you mastered it. So give us your secrets. Typically, we hire employees who uh, are friends of current employees. Or local high school children who are in 15 years old or so, who are members of sports teams, dance teams, music teams. They have to be a team, on a team, and they have to have a high GPA because we want intelligent employees and we want them to be team-based, team-oriented. So it's unusual that we hire someone older without a personal reference. And one day, I sit in the front of the room, 
front of the building right by the front door so I can greet guests when they walk in the door, and we have an open office. And this very attractive young lady walks in with the most beautiful smile, and she looks <laughs> at me with a big smile on her face, and good morning, I'm here to talk to Tony about a job. And I said, a job? I don't think we have any jobs opening, but I'd be happy to introduce you to Tony. And uh, Tony came out of the conference room, and he says, Tom, we, we need to hire this girl. Tony's our sales director. And she'd been IMing or whatever they call it through the Internet with instant chat. And uh, turns out that Nikki had graduated from the University of Southern California, moved back to the Chicago area, wanted to be in the hospitality industry, and had studied hospitality companies in Chicago. Mm-hmm. And Tony said that she wants to work with us and she'll work for free. I told her there's no jobs in event planning. She wants to be an event designer, and I said we have no openings. She said she'll work for free as an intern just to experience tasty catering. Of course, you know, I have low self-worth, so I'm thinking, why would you want to do this? <laughs> okay. And uh, I said, what's her purpose? And uh, he said she read, you know, she wanted to get in the hospitality industry, viewed all the major players in Chicago, and we were the only ones that displayed our core values on the front page, on the home page. And then she looked at our employees and found out that so many of them had been here 15, 20 years. And she made two comments. She said, first of all, I match your values perfectly. I agree with all seven of your core values. And with no turnover, you must be something very special. Aside from all the awards you've won, people don't leave you. They stay with you. Mm -hmm. And I just want to experience that because I've worked in corporate America and I'm just not happy there. So we gave her a 90-day trial period, a 90-day contract, and we would not pay, you know, we would not take her at no pay. We pay, and we pay a good rate for our interns because we don't want to abuse people or take advantage of them. It's not ethical. Mm-hmm. And uh, one day in December, of course, she's instant sunshine. I mean, every day there's a smile on her radiant face, and everybody fell in love with Nikki. She's just a sweet, wonderful person. And... Uh, we had a leadership team meeting in December, and the flash came through my brain. I said, has anybody offered Nikki a contract? We have all talked about how good she is, <laughs> and we nobody had. <laughs> so I said, let's stop right here. And I asked her CFO, and I asked their sales director, please go offer a job right now. For all we know, she found another one. Yeah. So they stopped the meeting, and we took a pause, and 20 minutes later, they came back in and said, yes, she's full-time. Oh, that's and, awesome. Uh, now, in February of 2014, we're going through the worst I've been in business because we had the third most snow and the third most coldest winter since 1888. And our business is down, and we've taken a salary reduction, an hour reduction. And Nikki and I are walking out together. We're the last two here on a cold February night. And she said, I still live at home, Tom. Why don't you lay me off, and you could give my money to the families that need it because I'm a salesperson, but I don't have a book and I'm not producing sales. Mm-hmm. I put the hammer around her and I gave her a hug and it says, Nikki, you're never leaving. No, man. Wow. Attitude is awesome. Man. And so fast forward to today, about six months later, we had an opening because one of our top sales event planners, uh, event planning salespersons had uh, left the area with her family. And uh, Nikki recommended her girlfriend, Michelle, and said that they'd She'd been best friends with her since kindergarten and uh, BFF and knew that she would fit in well, and she's very talented with her background, two years at Culinary Institute of America, uh, learning culinary skills, and then she's transferred to Kendall College where she got a degree in hospitality. And uh, so our team interviewed her, and they, she passed muster, and the team, her team interviewed her, and it has to be unanimous, so if the team doesn't want you, you're not going to be part of Tasty Catering. So your whole team has to unanimously approve you 
And then once you do, then the team hires you and the team mentors you. So uh, my first time I had coffee with her, I sit down and I talked to Michelle, and I said, Michelle, what, you're very talented, you're very skilled, you're awesome. Why did you come to Tasty? And she said, I was tired of my best friend telling me how much she loved her job. <laughs> oh, man. Now, they'll go fast forward. Those two ladies are the most dynamic, hottest event planners in the city of Chicago. Their book is incredible. Their conversion rate on their proposals for weddings, social events, and corporate events is unbelievable. The clients love them. The clients call me to tell me how wonderful they are. And, uh, you know, it's because they were attracted by our core values, not mm. the dollars. You know, it was the vision of how they wanted to live. I mean, if you could summarize it in just like one like sentence, I would say if you focus on being great and if you are great yourself and you're great to others, you'll attract greatness. And it just, you know, that, that slight edge, that um, multiplying effect of just greatness being like positivity and being attracted to each other. And it's just awesome stuff. Yes, we're a program of attraction. That's what we call it. We're oh, man, that's so cool. A company of attraction. Man, that's great stuff. So, I mean, you were just killing it with these stories. And the next question I have for you um, is what advice do you have on leadership? Uh, lead, don't manage. Leadership is a way of life. Management's a job. Mm -hmm. uh, communicate uh, with your people often, asking for their advice so they're involved with your company. 70% um, of all organizational change fails because the people don't buy into it. Um, we only have 60,000 thoughts individually, so if I try to run a business, multiple businesses, with just my brain, I'm limited, but if I have all of our employees, 200, some 200 employees times 60,000 thoughts a day, and then we get 68% of their thoughts, think of the brain power that we can have. So wow. when it comes to leadership, I want everybody engaged. I want everybody's voice to be heard. I want everybody to have their say. And I spend the majority of my time when I'm in the business, when I'm here in the facility, walking around the two buildings, talking to the people in all the different companies, making eye contact, uh, I know that they have nicknames for me. I know one of them is pretty vulgar. <laughs> it's guys that work in the back, you know. But everybody has a vulgar name. But um, So if you understand personal visions, you'll understand them. What do they want in life? Where do they want to go? And if you can help them get there, uh, then they know you care about them as a human being, that they are somebody. Mm, such powerful stuff. Great, great answers. So the next question I have for you, Tom, what's your, like, I mean, this, I'm really excited for this one because you said you're a reader and uh, one book a week is what you said, or, or two books sometimes. What's your best resource, so the best book you'd recommend for somebody in the restaurant industry? I like Danny Meyer's books. Mm -hmm. uh, Danny Meyer is uh, someone in the industry that I truly treasure. Um, I think, I don't know what it's called. Hospitality. Setting the Table? Setting the Table. Yep. That's it. I also like Ari Weinswig out of uh, Ann Arbor, Zingerman's Deli. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he has a whole series of books. Yeah, and they're wacky. Yeah. <laughs> Ari's a wacky guy, and he's a dear friend, and I just absolutely adore Paul Saginaw's partner and, and Ari. I've learned so much from Ari over time. But I told him I had difficulty reading his books, but they made so much sense. And he said, Tom, they're all essays. I like to write an essay, you know, write almost every day. And I collect an essay and make a book out of it. So once I understood that, I understood why they were disjointed. But I learned so much about service. And I went to Ann Arbor to uh, go through Zing Train. And I'm in his restaurant at the Roadhouse. And this guy kept filling my water up while I'm in conversation with these people. And finally, I turned to the bus for like enough with the water. And it's Ari. <laughs> <laughs> the Zingerman, standing there, says I, I'm a busboy every night. 
just like to walk around and listen to people talk about the food. <laughs> the world would do that. It's uh, awesome. So, <laughs> I mean, those, those are my two favorite yeah. for both awesome books. Uh, I've read both. Ari does a great job. If you guys need help with like visioning and mission, like writing your mission statements, uh, it's an amazing book to kind of talk to you about the purpose of the purpose and value in having a solid vision and mission and just that culture, restaurant cultures on how to establish that. It's very powerful. And then Danny Meyer setting the table also incredible stuff. What's your favorite part of Danny Meyer setting the table? All of it. All of it. Yeah, it's so, great. There wasn't one page that didn't, uh, didn't impress me. And I missed out on having an opportunity to spend some time with him about a year ago. And I'm looking forward to getting there and spending some time with him. But, yeah, he uh, he understands hospitality. Yeah, he. I mean, his book is incredible. It's a must read if you're in this industry. So, uh, the next question I have for you, Tom, what's your advice on marketing? If you could just drop one big old marketing bomb on us, what would it be? It's not about you. It's about them. Mm-hmm. It's not about the attributes of your business. It's about the pain and the clients that you're going to satisfy. How do you listen? How do you get those pains? What's your advice for that? Any time I, I read. Uh, an ad or find any marketing for any type of hospitality and they tell me that their food is great i'm thinking really well what do you isn't that a presumed value if you're in the food service business that your food is good mm-hmm. uh, what's the unique experience that i'm going to enjoy about you that separates you mm-hmm. we're fortunate that one of our spinoff companies is called the fork n-e-p-h-o-r-i-q and Nufork focuses on the catering and event planning industry and in four years they've now been named the authoritative marketing company for the event planning and catering industry because they focus just on this industry and they've focused all their wisdom and knowledge on hospitality. And uh, about two-thirds of the major markets in the United States, they have clients, and clients have an exclusive. And I've listened to these young people, and the oldest one in that company is a 32-year-old girl that told me either change or I'm leaving. But she has her graduate degree in communications. And her partner, the one who founded it, has her graduate degree in marketing brand strategy. I've listened to them talk about the hospitality industry, and I found out this. You need to market the pain that the client is suffering. Mm-hmm. That's what you focus on. It's not about how good you are. It's about how much you can make their day better. Mm. Such valuable, valuable stuff. So great. Um, I mean, it's so true. And you talk a little bit about that unique selling proposition, what separates you, and how do you, you, know, how do you shine light on what makes you special and different i mean such great stuff uh, all packed into that question so the next question i have for you tom is what technologies are you using as an entrepreneur i know you don't currently own a restaurant but as an entrepreneur there's so many technologies we can use to be you know more proficient whether it's an app on your phone or a website some kind of tool that you leverage uh, can you share that with us yeah, this is not my area of expertise eric i at my level all i what I use primarily, aside from Word for Windows, is QuickBooks mm-hmm. and uh, Cateries. Okay. Cateries, catering-specific software, and uh, those are the ones that we use most often. Um, I don't know what else we do. I'm an old man, so I'm more about the wisdom. <laughs> I have a dumb phone, a flip phone. I don't have a smartphone, <laughs> and uh, that's why I'm surrounded by young, brilliant people that are very knowledgeable and they yeah. have different programs and different apps. But I, I don't have a clue. And, and that's I do why. Know this, we have, 
Go ahead. 17,500 followers on Pinterest. I guess that's pretty cool. <laughs> that's but awesome. I don't even know what Pinterest is. I mean, I mean, I think that's why I asked this question because uh, there's so many ways you can leverage technology to be more efficient. And some of us are adopting some of that. And the fact that, you know, um, you've offered so much value in this interview, I mean, uh, I'll give you a pass. I mean, I think that your answers were great too. Uh, QuickBook, it has been mentioned a bunch of times on the show. And what is it about QuickBooks that you um, that you think is just so important? Why it's such a great investment? I think we need to know where our dollars are every single day, and we mm-hmm. need to know what our patterns are. Are they going up? Or are they trending down? And uh, 15 minutes into my workday at my desk, sitting at my desk, no matter where I am around the world. Mm-hmm. Within 10 or 15 minutes, I know where all of our 11 companies, what they're doing right now, where the cash is, and uh, where the concerns are. Plus, I can we play the great game of business, which is financial mm-hmm. transparency. And uh, in all of our companies, we know whether we're on target or not on target weekly. Mm. So, very, so, yeah, all great stuff. So powerful. And, I mean, we learned that from reading the E-Myth. You know, you have to be able to quantify your efforts. You have to be able to put numbers to see what you're doing and whether it's moving in the right direction or the wrong direction, and you have to pay attention to those. It's so important. So uh, the next question I have for you, Tom, what is your best business advice for somebody getting into the industry? Imagine you could go back to time, to 1970. Uh, you're with your, your girlfriend, your now wife, and you're asking for that $5,000. If you could go back to that version of Tom, what advice would you give him? Surround yourself by great people. Mm. That's advisors and people that work for you. Awesome and, stuff. Uh, that that is it in a nutshell. Surround yourself with excellent people that that share your values, your vision, your mission. Mm. And vision changes when you're in a startup. People are buying into your vision of where you're going. Mm-hmm. Once you get there, you have to readjust that vision because you may lose people. Mm-hmm. They're they're excited about the adrenaline push, they're excited about the growth, and then all of a sudden they want to have babies and they want to move into houses and they want to live with significant others, and the vision starts to crumble. But if you, know, if you surround yourself with people that share your values, your vision, and your mission, that are excellent human beings, life is wonderful, and you become very successful. Mm, awesome stuff. Thank you, Tom. So if I could have asked you one question that wasn't asked, what would it have been? What is your exit strategy? Mm-hmm. Why is and it so important? Uh, there's billions of books on how to get into business, and there's very few books on how to leave business. Probably the best book I ever read is Bo Burlingham's book that was released in November. Bo is a senior editor-at-large at Inc. Magazine. It's called uh, Finish Big. Mm-hmm. And every business must end. Every business ends eventually. It mm-hmm. might be when you're dead and being carried out the door, but it all comes to an end. And if we don't focus on that end, we'll never structure the business to last. Mm-hmm. We'll never uh, provide the right EBITDA. We'll never provide the right uh, cash foundation. So when I consult and I mentor through Collegiate Entrepreneurs Organization, other places that I speak and I, and I work with young entrepreneurs, I always talk to them, what is your exit strategy? At what point do you leave? Your best friend when you start the business might be your your college fraternity brother, but you know he may find a girl 200 miles away or 500 miles away and leave. Mm-hmm. How do you end this? And I think that's something that should be asked of all hospitality people is what's your end plan? What's mm-hmm. your exit strategy? You know, that's such a great answer, too, because of not only on the retirement side, but when you're getting into the industry, if you can look for people who are looking for a way out, 
Um, if you can be their way out, it's a great way to kind of circumnavigate all those, you know, having to go to banks to get the money. You can literally take over a business that's established and make it your own if you, somebody's looking for that exit strategy, too. That's another point. You very well said, Eric. Outstanding on your very perceptive. <laughs> Thank you. I speak in entrepreneurship classes, and I say you don't have to invent the new. You don't have to be innovative. Go find a boomer like me that's old and tired and has no exit strategy, and his children are withdrawn from him because he never had time life balance. And take over their business for ten cents on the dollar. That's what I've done. Yeah. I've acquired two businesses for ten cents on the dollar. They're worth because they had no exit strategy. Mm-hmm. And you know, I, I know some guys who wanted to start businesses and flip them for big money, and they did, and they mm-hmm. become very successful, very wealthy. And I know other guys and ladies, men and women, who decided they were going to build businesses to legacy for legacy purposes to mm-hmm. hold on to them. Awesome. So you have to decide, what do you want to do? Do I want to make fast money and continue to grow? Do I want something static? One of my favorite entrepreneurs in Chicago I was working through college as a painter, and uh, he couldn't find a job, and so he... The guy that owned the painting company wanted to sell it, so he bought it. Now he's one of the largest painters in Chicago. It took him five years to get, but he used his finance degree to leverage modern technology into an old blue-collar industry, mm-hmm. painting. And so no matter what business you're in, why? how are you going to get out? Mm-hmm. What do you want to do? Awesome stuff, yeah. Very super pow- powerful. I mean... You've been an incredible guest, Tom. Every story you've told, every piece of advice you've given us has been extremely actionable. Um, this is where we wrap it up, and I, we wrap it up by allowing you to call somebody out in the industry. Who is one indie restaurant professional you admire and think would make an incredible guest on the show? I think, uh, well, you know most of the people I know. <laughs> uh, I think a hidden gem in Chicago is Chef Rick Ortiz. Rick, Rick. Ortiz uh, owns Antique Taco. Ortiz, O-R-T-I-Z. Rick Ortiz of Antique Taco. Look out, brother. I am coming after you. We're going to get you on the show where you can uh, help contribute to this melting pot of mentors. And, Tom, you've been incredible. If there's anybody out there that is interested in maybe getting in on the catering side of the business, uh, how about you leave us the best way to connect with you to learn more about how we maybe might be able to come work for you someday? Okay, if I could just plug my book first that talks about employee engagement in detail and has eight different companies. It's called It's My Company Too. You can find it at Amazon, Borders, etc. But uh, you can reach Tom, myself, at Tom at TastyCatering.com, and you can follow me at Thomas J. Walter. That's my website. I blog on there quite frequently. And then my appearances, I speak all over the country internationally, too. And I might be speaking near your listeners. Awesome. Who, give us the quick avatar of somebody who would be perfect for your book. Uh, anybody who wants to be a leader, because with two academics and a 22-year-old creative writer, brilliant young person, we uh, went out and interviewed award-winning companies. We want to know what makes them the best, and I want to use these academic guys to be evidence-based research. So it's proven beyond a shadow of a doubt. It's not armchair philosophy. And we found out looking at different industries, from hospitality to manufacturing to hospitals to healthcare, we found out that the key ingredient was employee engagement. Mm. And the higher the employee engagement in these companies, the more awards they won, the more profitable they were, the more high performance. In our hospitality industry, all too often we don't focus on employee engagement. Mm-hmm. You know, one thing I hear all the time that comes up when people talk about the the, the problem with you know trying to find good work in this industry that there, there's nobody there's no good help out there. 
And I think that really gets under my skin. I mean, I feel like the problem isn't with finding the help. It's about, you know, are you a good, a good person to work for? And is that the problem? Oh, my gosh. You hit it on the head. Absolutely. <laughs> All your employees are marketing uh, spokesmen for your company. If they tell people I hate my job, I was speaking at North Dakota, University, North Dakota State University, and I walked in a hospitality class, and I said, we all have, we all work in our industry, right? Let's take it for granted. Mm-hmm. We have leaders and we have managers. Okay, I'm going to ask you if you love or hate your leader, love or hate your manager. Mm-hmm. Who here loves their managers? No hands go up. Who here does, don't like their managers? The hands went up. Who here loves their leader? Everybody's hand that had a leader went up. Who here doesn't like their leader? No hands. So it proved to me in the hospitality industry, people love leaders. They don't like managers. Mm-hmm. Awesome stuff, man. I mean, I think I'm, I I know I'm going to get that book. I'm going to get my hands on your book, and I'm going to read it, and we're going to get you back on the show to dive in on Authority Thursday if you're willing to come back, and we'll talk about the ins and outs of why that is so important. I think I'm here for you at any time, Eric. All right. Thanks so much, Tom. You were an incredible guest. Uh, there is no questioning. You are unstoppable, and I will keep in touch. Thank you, Eric. Thank you for having me. Talk about your storyteller. I mean, God, Tom Walter, man, you just are awesome at telling these stories and really painting the picture of what it takes and what you've learned and these experiences you had in your life. And, you know, we are all better for listening to your stories and taking your advice. Such a great episode. And, you know, Tom, he lists, like, I don't know, maybe, I think it was, like, five books in total in this episode that were covered. And uh, if you guys are interested in looking into any of these books, uh, his book, It's My Company Too, uh, Bo Burlingham's book, uh, Danny Meyer's book, uh, Good to Great, I mean, the list goes on and on. All of these can be found in the show notes. Uh, this is episode 107. Just So just head over to www.restaurantunstoppable slash 107. You'll find links to all those books and the resources that were discussed in today's show. And, uh, you know, one of Tom's if factors, I have to, point, have to point this out, is just that continuous reading. He is always reading. He said he reads two business books a week, plus that one casual kind of personal fun book. But, I mean, just having that constant flow of knowledge that new fresh knowledge from these industry greats I mean you can literally reach out pick up a book and have a mentor in your hand and uh, that that power is so just significant and uh, I think Tom is living proof of that and if you guys are anything like me and maybe you don't like to sit down and curl up with that book uh, in your bed. or You know, I like to get out and I like to move. I'm a very mobile, active person. And that's why I love audiobooks. If you guys haven't checked out audiobooks, head over to audible.com. Uh, you can get your free audiobook today simply by going to www.audibletrial.com slash unstoppable. Or just head over to my website. I have links in the side menu bars and in the show notes where you can get over to audibletrial.com slash unstoppable. Pick up that free audiobook. Give it a shot. If you don't like it, just cancel your membership. No charges at all. It's worth trying out, guys. Uh, I guess that's all I have for you today. Uh, you know, Tom, thank you so much again. Incredible guest. We can learn so much just from your positivity uh, and how to treat your employees. I mean, there's just there's so much packed into this episode. And uh, I guess until next time, guys, peace out.